Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined, as usual, by my friend and colleague, my partner in crime, the one and only Mr. Daniel Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. What's happening, Dan? Light banter. Oh, wait, sorry. I'm a little bit discombobulated, Leslie. We're coming We're coming towards the middle of the TCA press tour. Well, maybe I guess we're over the hump, but regardless, stumbling along. How about you? How many days have you been in this trap at the Beverly Hilton here? Uh, it's been about 10 days now. I think I, I think I checked in about 10 days now, and uh, someday I would like to go home. It's coming, though. We're, we're getting towards the end, but we're also getting towards the meat of things, which is one of our topics, but we're not there yet. Yes, but as Dan mentioned, we're coming to you again from Beverly Hilton Hotel in Beverly Hills, California, where we are still slogging through the Television Critics Association's summer press tour. Lots of execs have come and, well, a handful of execs have come and gone. We've heard a lot of spin. We've seen a lot of programming, a lot of content. Dan, really quickly, before we get into headlines, what's your big takeaway so far? PBS had an octopus. It was a cool octopus. And we were told that sometimes octopuses like to watch TV. Octopi? No, 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 no. See, if you'd gone to the panel, you would have had explained to you by an octopus expert that octopus has its roots in Greek and that if you go and you pluralize it along the Greek lines it should be octopuses not octopi (laughs) I have no transition after that Dan so how about we just kick off this week in headlines Jeff Daniels will star in Showtime series Rust, which was picked up straight to series and after it was abandoned by USA Network two years ago. Elsewhere, Amy Schumer is returning to TV and will create, star, and write in a comedy series for Hulu as part of a first look deal with the streamer, which has also renewed The Handmaid's Tale, surprise, surprise, for a fourth season. Over at Netflix, the stars of On My Block have all inked rich new deals for season three of the ensemble comedy. The streamer has also renewed YA comedy Trinkets for a second and final season with a new showrunner. And wrapping up the Netflix news in brief, 13 Reasons Why will officially end with season four. So Netflix announced that season three would debut later in August, and that production will continue straight in to the fourth and final season, which will likely premiere in 2020. And yes, if you do the math, that is 52 reasons why. (laughs) Over at FX, Kate Mara and Nick Robinson will star in limited series A Teacher, based on Hannah Fidel's 2013 feature film of the same name. FX has also ordered a star-studded individual episodic anthology comedy series from BJ Novak. And announced that, Dan, one of your favorite shows, Critical Darling Baskets, will end with its current fourth season. Uh, We must treasure the four seasons we got 
honestly, I'm amazed the show lasted three. So four is a bonus. Uh, it's a good special show. People will get to discover it for years. I'm still a little sad. Yeah. Wrapping up headlines, David Milch and Deadwood are set for TCA honors this weekend at the 35th Annual Awards, overseen by my dear friend here, Mr. Feinberg. And uh, looking forward to seeing how that goes. It should be a, a fun night, and I hope that Jesus and Mero are, are in a funny, lively mood. I assume they will be. Uh, anyway, that's a lot of news. The 13 Reasons Why News is silly, but... Whatever. I mean, that's a show that you said never should have gotten a second season. Yeah, that, and was, now it's that was four. That was a show that should have been a limited series adaptation of a book because that's what it was. And maybe it'll turn out that the third season, premiering end of August, gets the show back on creative footing. Well, uh, there will not be a suicide in season three. If that helps you with anything, there sure also was not one in season two. Uh, it just had many, many other things wrong about it. Also, why does Jeff? Daniels get a straight to series order, but Jeff Bridges only gets a pilot order. Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know. I mean, look, <laughs> that's FX, not a great question. I mean, <laughs> FX has a very specific development model. I mean, Diane Lane was cast in a pilot for Why the Last Man, which we obviously have talked about how big of a, of a property Why is, but Diane Lane, it was only a pilot. With Diane Lane, had still had to undergo audience testing, edits, notes, all that stuff, and then get a series pickup. So FX going to develop the way that FX does, and you know, hopefully, you know, you see the outcome on screen. So with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five. Number one. Leading off this week, Amazon came through TCA armed with a ton of news, Dan. The good, Jennifer Salke announced that Amazon has signed first look deals with Lena Waith, Connie Britton, Blake Lively, and Forrest Whitaker. They also handed out early renewals for Carnival Row and Sci-Fi Rescue The Expanse. Both of those were renewed ahead of their debut on the streamer. Ooh, can I read the bad news? Yes, the bad news, Dan. Excellent. The bad news is Amazon canceled, kind of pocket canceled or confirmed the cancellation of or however you want to put it, five shows basically saying that we will not get any more of the Fred Armisen, Maya Rudolph vehicle forever of Matt Weiner's rather strange The Romanoffs, Miles Teller's Too Old to Die Young, which many listeners aren't aware even existed, Tim Goodman's favorite drama Patriot, and for whatever reason, the podcast adaptation lore continued to exist, but now Doesn't we'll cease to. Yeah. All those cancellations come as Jen Salky stressed that Amazon is taking a curated approach to originals, unlike what Netflix and other streamers are doing with a big volume, massive volume place. Um, and yet we keep talking about how aggressively Netflix has been curating out many of your favorite shows in recent weeks or months. So, I mean, the Trinkets renewal for a second and final season, I think that's allegedly because of the creative. But what I mean... Do creators go in and, and pitch shows? I only want this to be two seasons, 20 episodes. I don't know. Um, or is this a cancellation knowing that, that it was low, but they needed to bring it back to conclude the story? Danny McBride pitched, I believe, Vice Principals as Vice two Principals seasons. One, yeah. So, you know, there would there would be an example and they wrote all of that beforehand and then filmed it. And that was just what it was. So it happens periodically. Uh, but no, not that often. And whatever. I, I am aware that Trinkets is a show that existed. So I watched that. every episode. I thought it was great. Did you? I did. Yes. I'm always confused by the things you've watched every episode of versus the things you haven't. I thought it was cute. Watch Rami. Yes, Dan. I know. I know, Dan. I'm a little busy with CCA right now, in case you haven't noticed. I haven't been to a Dodger game in weeks. But you missed the octopus. I did miss the octopus. I had, look, I had things to do with the office. <laughs> well, let's get back on track for Amazon. The bigger thing that I've seen 
at least my takeaway from from that is that Jen Salky's really starting to kind of make her mark on Amazon. We've seen her pick up a ton of shows and make a lot of these first look deals, some with actors, some with directors, some with showrunners. She's renewing a lot of stuff that was in the works before she got there. The Boys, which I've been told was one of their bigger performers of late. Carnival Row, Good Omens. These are all shows that were developed before she got there. But she's also starting to pull the plug on things that maybe aren't part of what their curated approach is. But from what I've seen in terms of writing and covering development, lots of genre. I mean, she signed the Westworld duo to a big overall deal. That's a really big get for them, considering that they were among those trying to go after J.J. Abrams. They're in on Benioff and Weiss. We don't know who they're going to pick yet. But, you know, when you look at the other stuff that they've renewed, Jack Ryan, Hannah, Homecoming, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, you know, these are big, broad shows and a lot of genre, too. And those shows you just mentioned were shows that they singled out as their top performing shows. But they also made very clear that they do not plan on even going the Netflix route of piecemeal performance-based highlights. So we know that Jack Ryan and Hannah and Marvelous Mrs. Maisel are among their most successful shows. Good Omens, I believe, is the other one they included there. But we do not know what that actually no. means. They said that some of their creators do, that they are told some kind of metrics, but it's it remains a mystery. You know, I mean, if you read um, Jackie Strauss had a great oral history for Orange is the New Black. And one of my favorite takeaways from that read was the head of Lionsgate, Kevin Begg, saying that they have their own system of deciphering metrics from Netflix of doing really well. We're very happy with it. And and like other cliches to delineate good, bad, not so great and poor. It's a little bit like during press tour when we're told that panels will be starting soon, shortly or immediately. And we learn that that means five minutes to minutes now so it's all just making things up um and they yeah they they did not rise to the bait of saying oh we're gonna start telling you that 40 million people watched 70 percent of uh one one episode episode in in the first three days or of whatever it is that netflix likes to do so if we're going to make fun of netflix for this stuff and we do we should at least acknowledge that this is something that amazon's doing as well and Hulu didn't even do an executive session, so we don't know how they would attempt to spin their numbers that also don't exist. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, you know, in the larger sense of Amazon, it's it's interesting to see their focus kind of come into something that's a little bit more crystal clear because, you know, Salky's predecessor, Roy Price, loved a lot of this niche stuff that few people would watch. I mean, and then they took some really other interesting swings like what was it? They had one that the Jean-Claude Van Damme show that was completely Jean-Claude Van Damme out of Johnson. nowhere, yeah, which was which was a great pilot and a questionable ongoing series, but lasted only. A season anyway. Good yeah. pi- really good pilot, though. Probably the pilot was an exercise in just how far you could take that premise. And the rest of the series was an exercise in wheel spinning. But yeah. these things happen. They also emphasize, though, that the, the Roy Price era was not formally killed. It was, you know, there are still shows in development and they don't look at things as having been developed by previous administrations. Blibbity blobbity. Uh, I mean, Lord of the Rings was some was a deal that Roy Price started and their former now former head of genre, Sharon Taliugato, closed the book on and they were able to secure that deal for two hundred and fifty million dollars just for global rights to that franchise. That's that, not talking about production, casting, anything. That was one of 
of my favorite parts of the panel when a critic asked uh, when this was going to be said, and they said, oh, it's during whatever it is, the second golden age or whatever. I'm sorry, but I'm nerdy in many, many different ways, just not this particular one. And the critic quickly observed that that's a 2,000-year period that they're saying that it's taking place in, and they just sort of smiled and nodded politely, which was probably the only response. I mean, they weren't going to say, oh, it's 1937 in their world or anything. Yeah, I mean... The, <laughs> but it was still fun. Yeah, I mean, that's part of the appeal. They want people to subscribe and watch. And by subscribe, they mean, look, free shipping. That's why I have Amazon. I mean, I don't have Hulu. I mean, I have a press account, but I, that's not something that I've paid for that I would willingly pay for. I mean, if I wasn't in this industry, maybe I would just because I absolutely loved Pen15 so much. And yes, what, I wait, know what, I need what, to what? watch... Oh, say it, Dan. Just say it. Hulu's penis. <sighs> there we go. And I know I need to watch a lot of other content, but Rami. yes, but like, <laughs> you know, who doesn't have an Amazon account? The bigger interest, you know, as, as our colleague Tim Goodman frequently points out, Amazon's not going to lose subscribers because the original content is the cherry on top of the free shipping sund- ice cream sundae. This is a terrible analogy. Please stop me. Dan. OK. And Emmy should also expand to 10 nominees per category. <laughs> Sorry. I th- we're talking about our battle cries of our colleague, Tim Goodman. Yes. So, okay, I stopped you there, but that doesn't mean I had a transition. No, Amazon had a lot of stuff to talk about. And again, they had a lot of stuff to cancel, a lot of stuff that people don't necessarily know even existed. You know, you mentioned, we mentioned Too Old to Die Young, and they specifically said that they basically tailored promotion of that to a a more European audience. It was treated basically as, as much as we hate to say this, like a 10-hour European art house film, which... Frankly, it kind of was. So I think I just got TCA bingo for you saying that, Dan. I, that's what I'm here for. And uh, you're sitting next to the TCA president, which was also a square on the TCA bingo. So, And you said that you haven't watched the Dodgers, which was on the TCA bingo. So anyway, we're covering a lot of ground here. So yeah, they basically, they, they you know, no one thought there were going to be more episodes of the Romanoffs. I don't know if that even really counts as a, uh, <laughs> as a cancellation. Forever didn't really require a second season. So, you know, it could have gotten one and that would have been fine. They're they're doing a lot of things and there's a lot of out with the old and in with the new and basically making making way for Lord of the Rings, which Jen Salky said would begin production in 2020. 2020, which then means that there's no way we're getting it before 2021 or something. So that's a long time knowing that you have a service defining property and that it's just a year and a half or two years or three years out on the horizon. So they're doing what they're doing. But they would totally take another season of Fleabag if Phoebe Waller-Bridge said she wanted to bring one to them. Yeah, but that's also part of the risk when you do this. I mean, look at how long HBO is taking and took originally with Game of Thrones. They reshot a big chunk of that pilot. They are taking their time with the spinoff and the prequel. It's not surprising that it's going to take some time for Lord of the Rings, but that feels like a good point for us to move on to our second topic of the week, Dan. Number two. Batting second this week, Stars has a new programming mandate, which was unveiled this week at TCA, and it's, well, it, it's raised some eyebrows, to say the least. Chief Operating Officer Jeffrey Hirsch said the premium cable network is looking for, and I quote, Premium female fare. The term was coined by Hirsch, the chief operating officer who is overseeing stars after CEO Chris Albrecht was pushed out in February after a power struggle with new corporate parent Lionsgate. Dan, I mean, before we get really into what premium female is, what was your your gut reaction when you heard this from the stage? That it was a choice. (laughs) That was my gut reaction was, 
I would not think that was exactly the way I wanted to phrase such a thing, regardless of whether or not it's true, because I'm sure it is, because who wouldn't want your audience to be women who make up more than 50% of the population, who are wealthy? <laughs> that seems like a perfectly fine thing to go with. That being said, it feels like it's a limiting description for a premium cable network that we've already discussed doesn't exactly have the clearest brand. So this is them saying, okay, we're going to put a description on it, a restrictive des description, and it doesn't, to me, capture really a lot of the things that, to my mind, Stars actually does quite well and that people don't necessarily know about. Because I'm always telling people, oh, you think of stars as being whatever you think of stars as being, but here are five shows on stars that I think are fantastic, whether it's Vita, whether it's me telling people for the billionth time that they need to watch America to me, whether it's me saying that the first season of Now Apocalypse is a really, really fun, dirty, campy joy that was canceled after one season but makes sense. There are a lot of things that stars does well, and they're going with premium female. So tell me more about premium female and what you were told about this and how it's making the people feel on the interwebs. Yeah, so I came into that panel a little bit late running from another interview, but my immediate reaction was, I don't understand what this push is or why a network would do this. So I sat down for an extensive Q&A with Mr. Hirsch, and he explained that premium female is older women, the 24 to 54 demo, who are more economically viable. He said he's looking for high-end scripted drama that includes great women in history and a lot of IP, and basically that the audience for Outlander is the audience he's looking to draw in, that the Outlander viewership is his sweet spot. To that end, Stars Renewed, The Girlfriend Experience for a third season, picked up a reimagining of period drama Dangerous Liaisons, and set Mary J. Blige to star in the upcoming Power spinoff. As for Outlander, it's not returning until 2020, which, I mean, for a network that that's your network-defining show, that's your sweet spot, and now it's off the year for... I think it's going to be something more than like 18 months or something like that before it comes back. He's saying it's early 2020. I'm not sure they haven't announced anything. But anyway, as part of the interview, Jeffrey Hirsch said that Outlander appealed to women because its star, Sam Hewton, often had his shirt off. And that <laughs> naturally enraged author Diana Gabaldon, who ripped the executive. And then Hirsch went on to explain some of the cabler's recent cancellations, including Counterpart, which you loved, Tim Goodman loved. A lot of people really enjoyed it. It had a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And Hirsch said it just wasn't accessible, a.k.a. it was too convoluted for people to kind of come in and check out and turn on and, and have their brain get lost in TV. And then he said, now Apocalypse, to your point, Dan, skewed too male. Which presumably means also too gay. I, I don't get, it just doesn't make any sense. And it doesn't align to the things that the network has done successfully. If you're first and Outlander is a hit. Sure, of course it is. And people like it. But it's not as big a hit as Power. And No, Power is their most watched yeah, original, which is why they're spinning it off. And, and Lionsgate Inc., this big overall deal with the showrunner. It does not seem to me like the network has ever fully understood how to build off of power. And I think that they tried for a long time, for example, to do a lot of uh, Latinx skewing shows. They For a while, they kept saying they were going to have different shows filming in Cuba, none of which have actually ever aired, but they still may be developing those things. I don't know. But you have Vita, which is a show that 
to my mind, almost certainly skews younger. It probably should skew more economically diverse. And I feel like power also should as well. Just why would you close off avenues to your audience when no one is making you? I mean, say what you will about stars and that they really didn't have a very specific brand, but they had done a very good job, at least on paper. And I don't and I admittedly don't watch a lot of these shows of trying to program to underserved communities. And Vita is a, a prime example of, of that. And now you're looking at some of this other stuff that they're doing, and it's, and they're basically turning their back on some areas of, of what they've done well. I don't know. So we're going to get more shows about women in history from stars? I mean... Yeah, it's pointless. It's an unforced error. No one was making them do this. That being said, they had to come up with a brand. And I think we've talked about that extensively and that the network's brand was eclectic and the network's brand was here are things that we can encompass under the stars brand. And I always kind of liked that, that, OK, here are three or four really good shows that don't necessarily go together. That's what the brand is. Yeah, And they worked really hard to kind of get away from the fact that this was the network that was home to violence and and a lot of nudity in their programming so which you know definitely vita does not lack for at least one of those two things and that's part of why it's such a good show and counterpart is too convoluted a show to attract casual audiences but either you say we really are kind of into the idea of this really really literate really really twisty spy alternate dimension series or you're not they decided they weren't and and also we should note that outlander and counterpart are not owned by stars or by lionsgate their new carpet parent yeah there's a lot of odd stuff here from a network that i feel like i watch a pretty reasonable amount of stuff that they put on the air and and i am not premium female so where do i fit stars where do i fit won't someone please think about the middle-aged white man Well, let's go. That's a natural transition to our next topic, Dan. Let's talk CBS. <laughs> Number three. Up third this week, CBS executives kicked off the broadcast portion of TCA on Thursday. And as Dan mentioned at the top of the show, we're at the halfway point, which, I mean, it's exhausting to even think that we're at the halfway point. Up first was CBS. They came armed with a renewal for ratings under performer Love Island and statistics to tout its inclusion strides behind the camera. Kelly Call and his top lieutenant, Tom Sherman, instead wound up using their 30 minutes or so before the press to defend CBS's decision to renew Bull, a topic we spoke about extensively in May around the upfronts. And they also addressed a lot of the representation issues, and by issues, I mean problems, on its unscripted hits like Big Brother and Survivor. Dan, that session got a little heated. What was your your big takeaway from that? It got a little heated, and I think that it got heated in a way that wasn't an invalid way for it to get heated because I think that CBS wanted to tout a lot of improvements that they've made. And I think that there is no question that they have attempted to make those improvements. And you see it on screen in some of their new fall shows, including Evil, The Unicorn, Carol's Second Act, and Bob Hart's Abishola. And so they talked about how 53% of their writers were women and people of color and that and 50% of their directors would ultimately be. And that's great. That's fantastic. And that is a thing that should be praised. At the same time, when you're making progress, it means that people are going to point at the ways that the progress is being made more slowly. And I don't think there's any question that there are problems 
in the edit or in the casting or whatever with shows like Big Brother and Survivor. This season of Big Brother, which I found unwatchable because it was boring and poorly cast, it was so strange because people who were watching the live feeds kept talking about all of these racist conversations and characterizations that then weren't being put into the episodes at all. And if you're going to allow people to have access to those live feeds, which is a principal part of how Big Brother operates, there are people out there who know that the show is being actively whitewashed. It's not a good look, and it's a thing you have to be prepared to engage. It's a thing you have to be prepared to engage when Survivor contestants are coming off of the show and saying, yeah, that edit was not in any way reflective. It was making me look like a specific, vaguely racist trope that has nothing to do with anything I did out there. It's not a good look. So they were being grilled about a thing that to me is valid and a thing that does not take away from the progress they've made at the same time. But you can't deny it's a thing that is worthy of conversation. And I, I think without any question, it is a problem and it is a thing that needs to be addressed and discussed. Yeah. And the answer that that uh, Kelly Call and Tom Sherman had from the stage, at least, was that a lot of the producers on these unscripted shows are going to undergo unconscious bias training um, and that there would be meetings and discussions, presumably after the current seasons are done and in the can. It's the same thing as what they said with, you know, when they addressed the bull renewal. And look, this is a show that people, their viewers love Michael Weatherly. He is a star who was homegrown on CBS and, and was on NCIS for, what, a decade plus. Plus, Kelly said 10 million people watched that show and the numbers didn't go down after Eliza Dushku came forward with her experience on that set. And the news of that multi-million dollar settlement went public. The execs also said that showrunner Glenn Gordon Karen and Michael Weatherly are both undergoing leadership training. Dan, you pushed them on what exactly that means. And they didn't really have an answer. Well, the primary answer is that it's not apparently sensitivity training. It's not apparently, you mentioned uh, racial bias. How did you want to put what they were being asked to learn on the reality shows? Unconscious bias training. Yes, which it should be noted, it's not an unconscious bias if you're literally editing out people's racist statements and making them look less racist than they are. That's conscious bias if we're being completely honest. But I mean, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, so they, they emphasized leadership training. So that implies the problem on the set was not a problem of rambunctious, sexually inappropriate behavior. It was a problem of people setting an inappropriate tone. And those are things that are, I think, they go hand in hand but I don't think one necessarily <laughs> cleans up the other. I think that you could spend a lot of time in leadership training and not learn that some of the stuff that Eliza Dushku alleged happened on that set was appropriate. So, yeah, I mean, so, you know, in, in a nutshell, CBS is making some important strides, but still has a tremendous amount of work to do. And, the you know, Kelly and Tom were both fairly willing to answer the questions. I To me, they probably could have more directly responded to the concerns about the reality shows, because I think those are, it, this is not the first summer that people have gotten outraged by some of the Big Brother contestants being gross and by the edit of some of those contestants not reflecting what people who watch the live feeds 
no. So it's a conversation. And again, we don't we definitely don't want to take away from the strides that CBS has made because they do exist. They are real. You can see it on screen and behind the camera. But it's a process. Yes. And hats off to Kelly and Tom, both for actually doing an executive session when they knew that they were going to be stepping into the lion's den of questioning, especially after the bull renewal. Not every exec from every broadcast network is going to participate in TCA. Dan, I think you've gotten four out of the five networks to, to hold sessions. So again, for what the third or fourth, I've lost count, but the new execs from, from NBC haven't had time before TCA yet since taking over for Bob Greenblatt. That takes us to our fourth segment of the week. We're very excited here at TV's Top 5 to introduce a new segment, Showrunner Spotlight. Number four. We're thrilled to welcome Josh Schwartz to TV's Top 5. Schwartz is the executive producer behind a rapidly growing roster of shows, Marvel's The Runaways on Hulu, The CW's Dynasty, and upcoming Nancy Drew, Hulu limited series Looking for Alaska, which is based on the John Green novel of the same name, and the upcoming new take on Gossip Girl for HBO Max. Schwartz, of course, is best known for creating cult hits The O.C., Chuck, and Gossip Girl. Welcome, Josh. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us, Josh. Getting started, you know, from a development point of view, I'm really curious. You had an overall deal at Warner Brothers for a long time and then ABC Studios, and you've been independent for the past few years. When I, you know, rattle off a lot of these shows that that you're doing right now, you've got shows for ABC Studios, CBS, Paramount TV, and Warner Brothers. I mean, is that the appeal of going independent and avoiding the studio system? It is. I mean, we had a great experience at Warner Brothers. We had been there, as you said, for a decade, wanted to see what else was out there and went to ABC Studios and, you know, Runaways was born out of that of that deal. But increasingly, we felt like the world was changing so rapidly and there were so many things that we wanted to be able to do uh, with some of these newer streaming platforms, but they weren't really interested in hearing a pitch if there was a studio attached. They wanted to own those things. And so increasingly, we felt like as much as we liked having the overall deal and the comfort of knowing we were going to get paid. And the overhead. Yeah, yeah. was going to be covered. It felt more and more like we were being kind of left out of some of the exciting opportunities. So going independent was scary at first because you're like, will anyone ever pay us to do this again? But also it's been incredibly liberating. And you can just be excited about something creatively and know you'll have the opportunity to do it and not feel like you have to then appeal to the studio or the network to make some kind of a deal that, you know, it just takes a lot of that part of the process out of it. And you wouldn't have been able to do the new Gossip Girl had you been with anyone else outside of Warner Brothers, right? Yeah. I mean, there's so many things that we would not have been able to do. I would not have been able to do Looking for Alaska again if we had had a deal somewhere else. So we made the decision to bet on ourselves and hoped that it would allow us to have greater freedom and flexibility. And we've been really thrilled with the result. And when I say we, I want to make clear I'm talking about myself and Stephanie Savage, who is my partner at, uh, at Fake Empire. And um, yeah. Who's not able to join us today. She's out of town, but she sends her warm regards. Very warm because she's in Paris, where it's 108 degrees. Yeah. Wouldn't we all rather be in Paris? Not when it's 108 degrees. Probably true. Well, I mean, a lot of people, once they go onto one of the streaming services and they discover the advantages of doing only 10 or 13 episodes, or in the case of Looking for Alaska, eight, they're like, okay, I'm, I'm done with 22. You're kind of keeping your feet in both worlds. Are, are you really feeling kind of platform agnostic still? You're, you're not choosing to run away from the network model. I love that term, platform agnostic. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, having done 27 episodes for our first season of The O.C., we did 25 in season three. We did 25 of Gossip Girl. I mean, uh, and now all of that, not to interrupt, but 
to interrupt. All that is unheard of now. I mean, no broadcast show does like Nor that much. Nor should they, really. Especially in a first That's season. That's a long, long year. I mean, luckily when we did the 27, I didn't know any better and I was young, so I had the stamina for it. But, you know, creatively, being able to do less episodes obviously has a lot of upside. I think one of the other great liberating things working in the streaming is if you have an episode that feels like it should be 48 minutes, it can be 48 minutes. If you feel like it should be 52 minutes, it can be 52 minutes. I have a personal issue with anything that goes over an hour. So I've made that a rule for myself that we won't do an episode that'll go over an hour because whenever I see it's over an hour, I'm very bummed out. I'm like, I was giving you an hour and you're taking an hour, 15 minutes. But anyway, there's just a lot of flexibility in that regard. And it can really be about what's best creatively, which is really nice. On the shows that we do do for broadcast, those aren't shows that we're running because I just don't know that I have it in me to run a show that does that many episodes again. <laughs> it's a young person's game. I feel the same way about the hour running time, and now we have you on the record on that one. And so, and I'm sure you will flame me when I breach that rule. Yeah, yes. Just try to avoid it. <laughs> I'll do my best. You know, you said that today on the panel for Looking for Alaska that obviously that originally started out as a feature. And can you talk a little bit about the bumps that brought it to Hulu and what the advantages are now? I mean, obviously, the running time is, is the big one. You have eight episodes or eight hours to, mm -hmm. to tell a story that you would normally tell in under two. Mm -hmm. But what are the other big advantages? Yeah, I mean, just to go back, I was sent the book for Looking for Alaska. It was an unpublished manuscript by a then unknown author, unpublished author named John Green, and fell in love with it. And um, it just spoke to me on a very personal level, even though it was inspired by John's own high school experiences. I felt like they were my own. And just the voice uh, that he wrote in, and, the, and I just related to Miles as a character, and it had an Alaska in my life. There was just on so many levels, I just felt such a strong affinity for it. Set it up at Paramount as a feature film and wrote a draft, and John was really happy with it, and it made it on the blacklist, and I felt really good about it, and couldn't get it made. And it was probably a really, it was a really tough movie to make for as a studio film, you know, looking back on it. And kept doing different drafts, and the drafts were really just that different for, you know, whatever, whoever the new studio regime was would come in, and I would do a different pass. It just kept taking it further and further from the book. And eventually, actually, when Gospel Girl and Chuck both went, it was like I no longer really available to keep rewriting this movie for no reason and probably making it worse and inevitably, you know, for... It's not going to get made. So I had stepped off of it. And then Fall in Our Stars happened, and John became a household name and a publishing phenomenon. And we kept appealing to the studio going, if you look on the YA New York Times bestseller list, number one is Fall in Our Stars, and number two is Looking for Alaska. And Looking for Alaska at that time had been out you know, five or six or seven years and was still continuing to resonate and find an audience. And um, couldn't get them to pay attention. So eventually they decided to, to go make the movie, and then they were going to make it without me, which was devastating. And, and you know, there's a lot of things that don't come together that you have to learn to let go of. It's part of the, being in the business. But I couldn't let go. I just It was very hard. And anytime I would hear someone talking about the new version of the movie, it was like hearing about the person you were madly in love with who is going to get you know married and move in next to you and taunt you every day of your life uh, with how happy they were. <laughs> so when I heard that the movie fell apart, very late in the game, I knew that John was pretty burned out on the feature film road for Looking for Alaska, but started to think about, you know, this idea of a limited series was not something that had existed a couple of years prior as a real viable option, you know, um, for, for telling the story. And I started to think about like, well, wow, Miles in Alaska spending Thanksgiving together, that would be an incredible episode. And Barn Night and, and the big prank in Barn Night, oh, that would be an incredible episode. And just started to think about how you could open up the story and go deeper and 
tell a version of the story that's very faithful to the book, but also take things that are hinted at or alluded to or backstory in the book and put them on screen. And so I approached John with that idea, and he started to get very excited about it as well. And, you know, one of the things I said to him was, you can't top the theatrical experience that you have with Fault in Our Stars. You know, just the the way that movie was received and what a, it was such a great adaptation and it was so successful and the book was such a phenomenon. We can't top that. But what we could offer is a more immersive experience for the audience. And suddenly you have eight hours with these characters instead of just two. And that we had the opportunity to open up especially the, the point of view on Alaska as a character, and make sure that we were able to see her, especially as the show goes on, in her own unique and her own perspective outside of, you know, for John, the book is all about sort of, a big part of the book is about the, as he calls it, the catastrophically limited male gaze, and that we had the opportunity, this was also something that was really important to Stephanie as well, to make sure that she existed as a, as a character outside of the male point of view. And that was an advantage we had um, doing it for Hulu as well. Well, in 2005, when you would have gotten it, you were, you know, you were a couple of years into the OC, but you were obviously significantly younger. You were at a different phase in your life. What does 2018, 2019 Josh Schwartz respond to in this text that maybe 2005 Josh Schwartz didn't get? Uh, well, the book is really about, and obviously every time you revisit a book, you find something different in it and, and books that you love mean something different to you at different phases in your life. But the story is really about how life is precious and life is fleeting and we have to take care of the people in our lives and people can just slip through your fingers and some of the bigger questions of, of the book of what happens to us when we die, trying to find meaning in life. A lot of those things as you get older obviously start to resonate for you even, even more. Sometimes as a teenager or as a young person, you're not even necessarily, you assume that's going to happen to somebody else. And then eventually you're like, oh, oh, I am getting older. That is going to happen to me too. And I think the understanding that that life is is finite and time, you know, is, is finite and life is fragile is something that just becomes more resonant to you as you get older. Certainly to me, becoming a parent and all of those things. Well, did you go back and revisit the draft that you had written originally? I did. I did. And uh, and actually, the, I went back to the very first draft that I had ever written of the future and, and kind of started there and looked at it and felt like, well, this feels like a good demarcation point for the end of what the pilot story would be. But that, that still gives us, you know, 20 or 30 pages to be able to kind of open up the story and dig into it even more and start to invent some things that weren't in the book, which John has been incredibly supportive of as well. A lot of what you're doing now, looking for Alaska, Runaways, Nancy Drew, a lot of it's all based on IP. As a producer, how much are you looking for projects that can cut through the clutter that are based in this and or being asked by these networks and streamers to adapt things that are a lot easier to market because people already know what they are versus coming up with new ideas? I mean, are, are, you know, is there a network that's calling you and saying, we want the next OC original idea from Josh? Yeah, I mean, I'm lucky in the sense that, like, the two favorite things that I read in sort of 2004, 2005 were the Looking for Alaska book and Runaways when it first came out. So I feel very fortunate that both of those things that I really fell in love with, it wasn't just about, hey, it's IP, we should do it, but it was, this is something that really resonates with me on a very personal level and I feel very passionate about. And with Nancy Drew, Stephanie grew up owning every original hardcover with the yellow spine book of Nancy Drew. And that is a character who was just a huge inspiration for her. So I think we try to find, IP, you know, if it's IP, which obviously you stated, helps you cut through the clutter and, right. and feels like it gives you a certain advantage in terms of getting made, because that's really what we're here for, you know, is to, is to hopefully write something that will be made and seen by an audience versus just do endless development. You want it to be something that you feel like 
does. There's a reason why you are taking on that IP versus somebody else right. and that, that personal connection. So trying to find that that cross section of something that you feel really personally attached to that you also think someone might put on the air is is always helpful. Well, but do you and Stephanie talk in terms of original ideas at all, or you what just got that? so many things? What's an original idea? Yeah, <laughs> no idea is original, Dan. You of all people should know that. We're all fired by something. Yeah, and you know, um, the, you know that is something that we would love to get back to. We do kick those ideas around, or even if it's it's something that you you know an article that you read that can inspire something. That is definitely there is some great fulfillment in, in doing that as well. Well, we talked. You talked a little bit about sort of the the young Josh who wrote all of those episodes of the OC, the twenty seven episodes. Season, I didn't write all of them, but who wrote most of them? You know, you 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 had your hands in all of them. You did. In my mind, you're a little bit like a sweatshop child working wow. on an iPhone for that season. That's a nice. Weirdly, that's the nicest thing you've ever said to me. But okay, yes. <laughs> What would you, looking back, tell that guy who was doing all of those episodes and who was pouring himself into that season so totally? I mean, if we're talking about the first season of the OC, that was just a huge learning curve for me because I had not done television before. And doing 27 episodes, you're doing more than a season's worth of storytelling. I think the idea of doing a season two, especially when you're in the middle of doing 27 episodes, you're like, I'm leaving nothing on the table. I don't, what do you, we have to do more of these. But looking back on it, I would have been like, some of these characters that people seem to be responding to, keep them around, keep them around. Maybe that'll be helpful moving forward. If that's, if that's what you're getting at. I, I wasn't really getting you to no. talk about doing a whole Rooney arc, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's a marathon. And I think one of the things that I, that I've now really experienced and that everyone always tells you, but you don't really figure it out till you go through it yourself is that inevitably in any career, there's going to be times where it's going really well and times where it's not going exactly as you hoped. And that, you know, sometimes out of those periods where you feel like you're a little bit in the wilderness, that can lead to great creativity. Well, I think what I was asking was sort of the idea that a lot of what you've been doing in recent years has been kind of steering and been producing. And I'm kind of wondering if not necessarily burnout from that first season or those first couple seasons, but if the process of doing that made you appreciate stepping back to some degree in a different way. It did. I mean, by the, Steph and I talk about this a lot. By the time, you know, that Shocking Gossip Girl ended and we had kind of been in the, that was about 10 years about of, of writing and show running at a very intense level. We were a little bit burned out and, and had taken a break and, and Runaways was really the first show back in and was and that we ran together. We never really run a show together. We were both kind of full-time showrunners on it and we kind of rediscovered our joy there. But I think pulling back and producing and being able to identify writers that we really liked and support, wanted to support and supervise was fun and fulfilling in its own right. But I will say that the process on looking for Alaska, where I was, I moved to rural Louisiana. I was, you know, it was an 89 day shoot. I was there for almost all of it. Stephanie would tag in so I could come back and see my family and go back. I directed the finale. So I've been there the last month getting all the way back in and either writing or co-writing or rewriting pretty much all of the scripts, except for the ones that, you know, Steph and I wrote together was unbelievably rewarding. And I think having stepped away from that made coming back to it feel that much more gratifying. Where do you see your balance now? I mean, you've got this big company, Fake Empire, obviously doing so many shows all at once. And, you know, you've gotten back to writing with Looking for Alaska, but you're also overseeing new writers. Do you have a perfect mix or like what your ideal situation is if you're writing like two shows and, you know, and, you know, grooming seven up and coming writers? I mean, how much do you see that as, as part of your new job now, too? I think we're I, I have to say the last year felt really like the right mix, you know, that we're there were both full time writing and show writing on runner ways and looking for Alaska. And those are the shows that we run. And then the other shows that we can really, we can either help write the pilot and then support those shows when they get set up for series. Cause there's so much more that goes into it, obviously in getting a show launch than just writing 
co-writing the pilot with some with a writer that we believe in that we have a whole infrastructure now a whole stable of people that we've worked with over the years of casting directors and production designers and costume designers and music supervisor well we only have one which is Alex Patapas but that we can bring to these projects so it's we want to be able to be there to help get the script right and get and if that means you know jumping in and rewriting it which we did on Nancy Drew we're happy to do that and excited to do that but then we can also bring this amazing roster of people that we've worked with and trust on on such a deep level to help realize that world and help set that up for series. And one of those people that you're reuniting with is Josh Safran, yes. who's doing the next take on Gossip Girl. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about and maybe clear up some rumors sure. about what ex- that is? Very Gossip Girl, about we what to that clear is. up some rumors. <laughs> um, well, I think part of it is just a... Uh, the limits of our of our English language. I mean, my and my understanding of reboot means you're telling you know a story with the same characters played by different actors. That's what I always understood a reboot to be, and that's not what this is. And you know, Steph and I had talked about over the last couple of years about Gossip Girl, and obviously you're seeing people revive you know shows that had once been dormant, and the idea that. It lent itself in a way like I we were approached about doing more OC or revisiting the world with the characters grown up or a new take on it. And that to me just felt like a very specific story. That was the story of Ryan Atwood coming into the Cohen's home. And we told that story. Gossip Girl had a little bit more of a franchise at the center of it. And the idea of examining how technology has changed and how the, you know, the high school experience has changed with a new generation of Upper East Siders and this concept that we have all become Gossip Girl in our own way. That was exciting, and that actually felt like it had some real creative potential. We explored some different takes. We went down some roads. We didn't do. We didn't want to do it just to do it. We reached out to Josh Safran, who was such a critical voice on the show, the first go around, and such an important part of the show. Was ended up becoming executive producer with me and Steph on the show, and he had this really great take that all of a sudden felt so rich and so smart and so of the moment that we we felt like, oh, this is the time, and this is obviously the person to do it with who we already know could write the show so well. Yeah. In a larger sense, you know, what do you think as a TV fan and as someone now who is re- rebooting, reviving, update, updating, yeah. um, continuing. One of, continuing one of your former shows, what do you think of, of TV's reboot craze? I don't know. I, <laughs> it's so, I think it depends on the show. You know, and I think some fans have this relationship with the show where they don't want it to end and they want to be able to continue to revisit it. I personally don't have that relationship with a lot of shows that I love. I'm okay with endings. You know, it was important to us that looking for Alaska, we are telling the story of the book and it has an ending. And we're telling, we're getting to the end of that story and I don't have any interest in going beyond that. So no big little lie situation here is what you're saying. That is not my intention. No, not at all. Well, but you mentioned the OC and the OC, you guys, on one hand, gave it a ton of closure and you jumped forward in time and all of that. But you also, without necessarily planning on it, set yourself up for exactly what the continuation of the reboot would be. You know, Ryan takes on a, you know, becomes the Sandy Cohen himself, takes on a little child of his own and whatever. Yeah. How desperate would you have to be to go down that road? Or do you actually every once in a while think, okay, I would like to revisit these characters? And how often does your phone ring with networks and Fox in particular, which is rebooting 90210 in a different way? How, uh, how many? There, do like you I said, there was a conversation calls? about it. There was a conversation about doing the OC a couple of years ago. And I just, I feel like the cast was ready when that show ended. I'm not sure how hungry they are to come, you know, they would be to, to revisit it. And again, I feel like 
that was a story that we told, and it was, you know, and I'm proud of the show. At the time when it ended, I felt like, oh, if I'd only done this differently or that differently, and it could have, it could have, you know, but in the ensuing, that's just my nature, but also, you know, the narrative, I guess, when the show ended. But in the ensuing years, the amount of people who still want to talk about the show, who are still excited to talk about the show, who still watch the show, it's really wonderful. And I've kind of made my, my peace with it, and I'm proud of that. And I feel like that's, the, the show has its legacy, and I don't really want to mess with it. A, a little bit like the hour running time. We, we have that now on the record. You do, you do. And we'll you see do. how long it, it takes. Yeah. Well, so mean, what, just to piggyback yeah. off of that, what do you think, what would you think if someone, if another writer came in and said, I have a new idea for an update of the, of the OC, would you bless that? Uh, I'll say never say never. Cause I don't want to put myself on the record, but it, again, it's just not something, you know, there, we, we felt like Gossip Girl, there was, a, there was a way you could come back to that and tell a different story, but in the same spirit, in the same tone as the original. You know, we always talked about after Chuck ended, Zach really wanted to do a, the Chuck movie. So there are, there are conversations, I guess, but if it feels like it's the right story. But I don't know. For me right now, that's not, that's not on the table. Now, as we're looking forward to looking for Alaska coming out, how much have you, are you sort of bracing yourself for the reaction from what is a very passionate fan base and simultaneously how much are you bracing yourself for the inevitable reaction from certain quote unquote advocacy groups for things like teen smoking treatment of hypothetical mental illness etc cetera, etc cetera. sort of those two ver very different versions of criticism so I, I feel like there's nobody who loves this book more than i do i feel like if you're a passionate fan of the book get in line and that line starts behind me so inevitably i'm sure somewhere along the way there's some line in the book that is somebody's favorite line that I left out, and I apologize in advance for that. But we worked really hard to, to make sure that the things that people really loved about the book would be there on screen. And obviously, John is also very protective of that. And no one has a closer relationship with his fans and readers than John does. I mean, he is, you know, he's taken this year sabbatical from social media, which I hope he ends before the show premieres, because he nice <laughs> to have, him, <laughs> have his social media presence uh, publicizing the show. But I respect his sabbatical. I would like to take one of my own one day. But we really tried to honor the spirit of, of the book. And I think it is really faithful to that, the spirit and the tone and the what he was after in that book and the ways that it changed were ways that we, it was changed in conversations with him. And hopefully it feels like an evolution, you know, as, as he's evolved or uh, there's things about the book that he wished he could do, have a do over, uh, you know, on, we really wanted to honor and respect and help manifest that as well. So on that regard, I, I, I'm very hopeful that readers of the book will feel like we have done justice to the source material. And I can tell you, I've never been on a project where everybody on the set, the grips, the camera department, hair and makeup, had all read the book and loved it. And where everybody was there for the right reasons. I mean, everybody was there because they really valued the book. In terms of the, some of the advocacy groups, teen smoking is such a huge part of the book, it felt impossible to imagine doing the story without it. There was many conversations about that. There will be PSAs about teen smoking. The show is TVMA, which was a decision that that was the only way we were going to be allowed to do the smoking was to to make it TVMA, and so that was something that we felt like we had to do for creative purposes. In regards to mental health issues or what have you, you know, this is not a story about suicide. It's not a story about undiagnosed mental health. It is not a story about drunk driving necessarily. We, again, we don't know what happened in the incident that, you know, I don't want to spoil for people who haven't read the book. But it is a story about, as I was saying, the recklessness of teenagers at times, how we sometimes don't understand that the people we feel closest to are in pain. I mean, those are really, that's really where we're kind of coming at it from. So hopefully people will see that that was our intention. 
We've done a lot of YA focused stuff. I think even before YA was a term that we use regularly for TV <laughs> shows. Um, but I wonder what the next step that you would like to see in your career is. Yeah. I mean, um, I know, somebody that, asked that me and, at that panel today, like, why do you keep writing about teenagers? Like I was like some creepy guy who was like hanging around the pub, you know, the high school. Well, I mean, first, what shows do you think, what else are, are you watching in that space that you think Euphoria. is really doing it right? <laughs> yeah. And what do you think of 13 Reasons Why? I'm very curious. I have complicated feelings about 13 Reasons Why. I understand why it really resonated in its first season. I didn't understand how they were going to be able to move forward with the story. I have not seen the subsequent season, so I don't know how they've, they've gone forward in, in telling that story. I have, and I still don't understand. <laughs> yeah, I think you're okay there. Um, I don't know any of the people involved in that show, but my sense is that their intentions were good, and it's just a really loaded, complicated issue, and I think it probably caught them by surprise what the reaction was, because I, I'm sure they set about to tell that story in a way that they wanted to be as constructive and helpful as it could be. And I, I, and I appreciate the fact that they are even going back and revisiting that first episode before audio, that they've heard and removing how the conversation has evolved. So I think that speaks very highly of, of the, you know, how they've responded to what's a really difficult thing. Yeah. And, and what about what's next for you? What's oh, the next, what's, what's the next step? Like if you were to make a show for, for an HBO that wasn't focusing or an, or a Netflix or whatever outlet you choose, what is that outlet and what is that show? Hmm. That's a really good question. I mean, it's so hard for me. Literally we wrapped last night. I literally flew back on a plane so I could be here for you guys today, uh, in this panel this morning. So, and it's been such a journey to get this story to the screen that it's like, I have to now accept the fact that that story is told and, and have to figure out what's going to happen next. I'm sure a lot of themes and, and things that I like to revisit will, will come back around in whatever that next thing is. But it's an exciting time, too, to, to figure out what that's going to be. Yeah. Have you thought more about doing something that was outside of the YA space? Uh, sure. Yeah. But there's just something about these coming-of-age stories that just keeps bringing me back. Yeah. Well, how often do you find that the, the kids on these shows are having to correct your sense of... The teenage psyche, teenage vernacular, anything. I welcome that. I mean, I love, I mean, one of the other great pleasures of doing these shows is being able to work with, with actors at the beginning of their careers. And you can recognize people with tremendous potential and be a part of the launching of their career. And as I've gotten older, you can do that, you know, in terms of hiring them. But also, I now have been doing this a long time and I can offer advice or insight or, you know, I've seen a lot of careers happen and fall apart and come back together or not. And, and, you know, there's so much about how you carry yourself off screen as well as on that. I, you know, I feel like I can now offer some, some insight and wisdom to these, to these young actors, but it's just incredibly exciting to see people who the world hasn't discovered yet and be a, a part of launching their careers. And Christine, specifically, the yeah. female lead who plays Alaska, Amazing. is definitely a breakout. I mean, Dan and I were talking about this earlier. How bummed are you that, that the society came out before looking for Alaska and you weren't able to introduce her to the world? <laughs> I, I, you know, I have to watch the society. It came out while we were up making the show, so I've not been able to watch a lot of stuff. But she is Alaska. I mean, she just, I can't imagine. However, she, whatever character she's playing on the society, I'm sure it's terrific, but people are going to see her in an entirely different way uh, when they see her in the show and as they see subsequent episodes. I mean, the work that she does just gets just better and better with each episode. And just, you know, she's able to hit all of the notes of the character and um, she's fantastic. And don't sleep on Denny Love. Yeah. <laughs> well, all eight episodes of Looking for Alaska debut Friday, October 18th on Hulu. The Runaways returns December 13th, also on Hulu. Dynasty returns October 11th on The CW. And Nancy Drew launches October 9th. Josh, thank you so much for joining us. Super fun. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us, Josh. You're welcome, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Number five. 
As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. This week's new arrivals include Robin Thede's A Black Lady Sketch Show over on HBO, the final season of Preacher on AMC, season three of Dear White People on Netflix, and Fox's show within a show take on... I think I described that right. It's confusing on the new Beverly Hills 90210 with most of the original cast returning. Dan, what you got? You know why it's uh, confusing to describe what Beverly Hills 90210 is? Oh, I know. I know. Why, Leslie? Because we haven't gotten screeners. Indeed. So I can't tell you if that's the thing you're supposed to watch next week. No clue. You know, happy happy to review it. I watched a lot of Nine Two and in my time. I am I am here for that show. Uh, I have did not miss a, an episode of the original, Dan. I, the, I am excited to check out what kind of a hot mess this is going to be. I don't think I missed an episode of the original. I definitely stopped watching the CW remake after I think two seasons, and it might have run for four or five. Mm, I, that was about the same. Yeah. So so yes, I am I am here for this new Beverly Hills Nine Two and even if Kathleen Robertson is not a key part of it, which is you know just a, a mistake. A total mistake. We are on record for that. But yes, so I don't have a clue if that's the thing you're supposed to watch, but it is coming out in the next week. So that's the thing. And you, they will be at TCA at some point in the near future. I hope that we get a couple seconds to watch before then, because otherwise that will be frustrating. Uh, you totally didn't mention the CW's uh, latest summer transplant uh, bulletproof. It's a show. Trust me. I've watched three episodes. You're giving me the deadest eyed look I've ever seen. Like you've never even heard of this thing. I swear to you, Bulletproof is a show that's airing on the CW and that's better than Pandora and better than The Outpost. It is a British cop drama made to look a little bit like Lethal Weapon and Bad Boys. And at times it does that decently. It's not great or even good or even really all that average, but it's not horrible. So it's a thing. It is totally a thing. Uh, in terms of things people should actually watch, uh, you should definitely listen to last week's podcast conversation with Robin Thede, creator of the Black Lady Sketch Show, premieres Friday night on HBO. It is it is very funny. It is very fast moving. It is the latest in the Friday late night slot that HBO also gave to Los Espookies before that, which has been recently renewed. Recently renewed. And uh, did you want to say it again, Dan? Los Espookies. Most of Spookies is terrific. And Black Lady Sketch Show is also very good. Um, also premiering this week is Dear White People, the third season. I, I found the third season a smidge disappointing. And I feel bad about that because in the balance, I would still tell people this is a show that they should watch. And that the first two seasons in particular are very good and then legitimately great. The third season is good. And so if you don't know your if you don't know how good it was before and what the trajectory was before, you'd go, it's a good show. But I was still disappointed, but I will recover from my disappointment because it is still a, a smart, clever show that people should check out. So that's that's a bunch of stuff. And maybe you're supposed to check out 90210 next week. I have no clue. Yeah, well, that feels like a good place for us to wrap things up. We'll be back next week with more highlights and guests from TCA. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. If you like us, you should subscribe on whatever your favorite podcasting platform happens to be. If you really like us, you should probably rate us. Positively, I mean. And if you really, really like us, reviews are always nice. Come say hi to us on Twitter. We're always happy to uh, chatter with listeners. And if you have questions for upcoming hypothetical mailbags, because press tour isn't going to last forever and there's bound to be a slow week or two, you can email us at TV's top five. That's the number five at THR.com. That's a lot of information. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Mr. TCA president.
Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.